0: break their lineage, break their roots, break their connections. So uh, basically you can, it's chilling when you, when you read those lines, chilling. It's not about re-education. It's about the aim, very aim is to completely destroy the people and also the culture.
1: Today I sat down with Rahima Mamut, UK director of the World Uyghur Congress. Rahima is a Uyghur singer and human rights activist and is an executive director of the Stop Uyghur Genocide and an advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Rahima Mama, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders.
0: Thank you for having me
1: you start by giving us a brief overview of who the Uyghurs are, some history, and where they're from?
0: So, Uyghurs are the Turkic-speaking people. We call ourselves Uyghur Turks. And our language is similar to the Uzbek people, uh, Uzbek language. Um, the, geographically, it is in the Turkestan, we are on the east side, and you have the west side, which is former Soviet Union. Um, to the north, we are bordering the Kazakh bordering with Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and former Soviet Union countries. And to the east, we are on the the, the China. Now, of course, it's occupied. And to the south, India, Pakistan. So it's a very vast uh, region, one uh, sixth of the China's territory. Um, and the Uyghur people have our own unique culture, language, uh, religion, we are Muslims. So it's very, very different to the mainland Han Chinese people. So Uyghurs always uh, lived in the uh, Turkestan region and Altaic and Central Asia. Uh, for thousands of years. And we believe we are the uh, indigenous uh, people in that land. Uh, The invasion by the Chinese started in uh, Qing Dynasty, during the Qing Dynasty. And that time was a military occupation. Very, very few Chinese uh, people actually came to the region and settled there. Um, from 1949 when Chinese Communist Party uh, invaded, uh, uh, settled and became the uh, main power uh, of the East Turkestan and the Chinese population was about four to five percent. And so the Chinese who actually started learning the Uyghur language um, rather than the Uyghurs became assimilated to the Chinese. Um, culture or anything like that. So the um, cultural uh, destruction started from the 1958, the rightist movement, then followed by the Cultural Revolution. So the since the Chinese Communist Party invaded and became the um, ruler of the of East Turkestan, so the destruction of the culture, of uh, religion, and of Um, basically to assimilate, trying to completely assimilate Uyghurs. That's how it started, from the time the the invasion, um, from the time, uh, from
1: 1949. And Could you tell us a bit about your own personal story and your moving from your homeland to the UK and how you became a well-known activist?
0: Well, um, I came to the UK in 2000. Uh, It was the event that happened in 1997, the Gulja massacre. Uh, I am from Gulja, uh, a northern part of East Turkistan, bordering Kazakhstan. Uh, so a very peaceful uh, demonstration led by Uyghur youth after three months of religious crackdown and uh, detaining many young Uyghur scholars. So this demonstration on the 5th of February, uh, 1997, one of the biggest demonstrations that happened in the region of Gulja uh, since the Cultural Revolution. Um, So the Uyghurs demanded the freedom, cultural freedom, religious freedom, which is guaranteed under the Chinese constitution. Um, because the region, uh, they call it Uyghur Autonomous Region. So when it was agreed in 1955 as Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and the the terms and conditions were that the Uyghurs have the full right, practice uh, religion, speak Uyghur language, Uyghur language comes first, then the Chinese second. But by the beginning of uh, 1990s, all this, Started, uh, Uyghurs was started being persecuted because of the religious belief, and uh, this very peaceful demonstration was um, cracked down, uh, was met by the military um, and the police opening fire to the protesters, killing over hundred people. Then followed by mass arrests. So I was at the city at the time. And uh, I saw the aftermath of what happened. The terror, police were terrorizing uh, the neighborhood. And uh, my son was a year and a half old at that time. And I said, I need to find a way to live. It's just getting worse. Every year and day by day, it was getting worse. We always experienced the discrimination um, in many ways. Uh, but the persecution since the Cultural Revolution um, ended. Um, We felt a brief, there were a brief time that we felt uh, this religious freedom and uh, um, had, I can say 80s were the much better time for the Uyghurs and then beginning of the 90s then this 1997, the massacre that happened. uh, That was the time that, the turning point for me. I decided to leave. It took me three years to uh, manage to get a secure passport and then get a visa, a student visa to come to the UK. So I came to uh, uh, UK in September 2000. So from the time I landed at the Manchester airport and the first person I talked about Golja Massaka and Hua Uyghurs was the taxi driver. So since then I have been um, really trying to raise awareness about uh, what is happening to the Uyghur people um, since the Chinese Communist Party um, took over and became the um, governor of the, of, the, of the region.
1: I'm assuming you can't go back to your homeland. Can you see your family and friends?
0: Since I came here, uh, from the time that I started to speaking up and also um, attending uh, protests with the Tibetan and other Chinese dissidents a um, few times a year, then I know that uh, you know uh, it's impossible for me to 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 return home because there are many occasions when Uyghurs attended some. Um, demonstrations or protests, and then when they returned, they were arrested on landing and given very lengthy prison sentence. I was fully aware of the risk and what will happen uh, if I were to return. So I never went back. Um, But I was able to speak to my family, uh, my siblings. I have nine siblings. Uh, still live in the region, and also a very uh, li- big uh, number of friends and uh, extensive uh, family uh, in t- two thousand and thirteen I was diagnosed uh, with a grade three cancer breast cancer and uh, um, the doctor told me that uh, The survival uh, chance is good, but there is a risk as well. So it's better if you have someone to come to look after you, especially during the chemotherapy. And I invited uh, my sister uh, to come and to look after me, but the government wouldn't issue her a passport. no one could come and visit me at the most difficult time. And that was time I I realized that um, I am on the really black, black list, because normally if you are on the black list, even if you are dying, your family won't uh, be allowed to visit you. And then uh, in 2016 from October, um, I couldn't get hold of anyone uh, when I, called my sisters, my brothers, my friends, no one would pick up my phone, both landlines and a uh, mobile phone. It was very difficult uh, for me uh, because I was very used to uh, speaking to my sister or my brother Uh, once a week at least. Uh, I always kept in turn calling them during the weekend. I always looked forward to speaking to them over the phone because for so long we never uh, met in person. But we kept in very close contact because of the telephone calls. And then no one would answer my phone call. Uh, On the 3rd of January, 2017, I repeatedly called my eldest brother. Um, By then I was very depressed, I was very worried. Um, It was really, really painful. Um, And then my brother finally answered my phone call, on my phone after I don't know how many times I tried. And then um, I asked him why no one is answering my phone call and uh, he said they did the right thing and uh, uh, please leave us in god's hands and we leave you in god's hands too and then he can hang up the phone and i knew immediately that they were under pressure either must have been warned by the police that uh, the consequences um, because i knew the quite brave people Uh, if there is if the consequences is not that severe, they would not not answer my phone call. Soon after, through my interpreting and translation work, I learned that this mass arrest started and a lot of people um, were taken away because they had family members living abroad and they had a phone conversation or video calls or sent money or received money from abroad and I was all uh,
1: criminalised at that time. 2018, the UN talked about these um, camps and they acknowledged there was a million uh, Uyghurs and also other Turkish Muslims in these camps, so the Chinese called re-education camps and that's an enormous number, a million people. Um, What happens in these camps and what, what are the Chinese Communist Party trying to achieve with these camps?
0: Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, since 2017, especially from April, we knew that there have been mass arrests um, in all villages, towns and cities. Um, Then in August uh, 2018, first time the UN uh, acknowledged, openly acknowledged that up to one million people are in um, internment facilities. The uh, Chinese government uh, denied immediately that there is no such a thing, but then after being confronted with the satellite images and the uh, expert reports, not just the activists are saying this; that there is expert reports and the very credible information, um, then the Chinese government uh, changed uh, two weeks later saying, well, these are the re education camps. We are educating people um, so that they can be lifted uh, from poverty and uh, 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 getting jobs and etc. But uh, even before that time, we already had some. Um, information regarding what is happening inside these camps. Uh, Initially, uh, we got this from people who worked inside, um, sending some information um, out. Uh, Radio Free Asia, for example, reported about the uh, scale and what the facilities are like. It's modern, is um, the camera or the, uh, everywhere? Uh, people were um, uh, forced to be indoctrinated and tortured and uh, very inhumane, inhumane conditions. And then I in- translated an interview uh, by the Radio Free Asia reporter. Uh, with a camp survivor at that time, very first camp survivor, um, Umar Bakkali, who was a a Kazakhstan citizen, originally born in East Turkestan. And so when he went to um, visit uh, his family, and he was arrested, and he was um, in prison then in in one of the camps in Karmai. Then he was released because he's a Kazakhstan uh, citizen. So he gave very detailed information about his um, experience. And uh, he said, I was chained on the bed for for months. And uh, actually I was treated better than many other Uyghurs because they knew that in the end I'm not uh, you know the Chinese uh, citizen. Um, he also mentioned about the uh, medical uh, examination. Said so the first they came to the house, uh, they p- placed black hood over my head, and chained me, uh, shackled me, um, handcuffed, and took me to first to the hospital, full examination. And he said, when they were uh, doing all this examination, I had black hood over my head. And at one point, he said, when this very cold gel, you know, when they put that gel examined my kidney area, I thought they gonna um, open open me up and take away my organs. That was a very eerie kind of description of even before he was taken. And he said every detainee was exactly the same experience. So first they come to the home, mostly at midnights, and then drag you out of your bed and take you to the, either first to police station or directly to the hospital and do the checkup. He said the queue in the hospital was just unbelievable. That just the sheer number of people were taken there. I have to wait hours uh, with that black hood over, over your head and you, can, you, you are not allowed to see anywhere. Then uh, the ordeal, he said that hardly any food, they gave very, very um, small amount, um, watery, watery um, soup and a small steam bun, once or twice a day. So when he was arrested, he's a very, very a big, strong-built guy, um, he was uh, 95 a kilo. When he was released, he was about 50-something, and uh, uh, the Radio Free Asia show, showed his photograph before and after. He was just really scary-looking. Um, so from uh, him uh, his um, this very detailed uh, description of what happened to him um, could I already know the kind of picture of what it is like uh, these facilities
1: what were they looking for with those hospital checks
0: it's very difficult to really prove anything because you know all the Uh, What the this operation the entire operation is in such a secret way? but we do believe they are profiling people and uh, um, building their DNA and also you know the the Chinese government is known for organ harvesting from the Falun Gong uh, members who gave evidence and we knew the organ harvesting is a very um, one of the evil a practice that it's been happening since the early 90s, 1990s. And we do believe that all these examinations is not to do to check if the person is healthy. So if they are not healthy, they have to give treatment. Rather, we believe there is a very eerie um, plan behind behind that.
1: Going back so kind of a decade or two there was a lot of focus in society on Tibet, and you had movies and movie stars talking about Tibet. But recently, there's been quite a surge on, on people focusing on um Uyghurs. What do you feel caused the change there?
0: Well, um, as you mentioned earlier, the, firstly, the sheer number of detention, you know, the, up to one million, but we believe you know, they never stopped detaining people and hardly released many. We know there were people released, being released in 2019. Many, we learned that they were in a really, really a bad state, either a mental breakdown or physically cannot cope any longer. Many died, many suicides. And uh, um, so uh, this practice is a first after the Second World War, people being interned in such large number because of their race, their religion. Um, there's no any other reasons. Um, also, the brave uh, account of the, you know, these brave survivors who gave extremely detailed accounts of including um, sexual violence, that BBC reported, Um, and also the forced sterilization, forced abortion, family separation. And we have so many families uh, in Europe, and the majority living in Turkey. And they were just ordinary people who never involved in any activism. Uh, They were doing business between uh, Istanbul and uh, Urumqi, And suddenly, uh, when some of their friends or family returned, they were arrested on landing at the airport. So they didn't dare to go back. And in that, they were separated from their family who they left behind. There are women who who left three, four children, and then the the Chinese um, police took them away. Up until now, many families don't know what happened to their children, What happened to the people who they left behind? So all these um, horrific stories came to surface and also uh, the interest of the many Chinese experts who did very intensive, um, uh, great reports on on what is happening. Um, For example, Dr. Adrian Zenz carried out uh, research on um, uh, forced birth control and also the the forced uh, labour, for example. Um, Because of all these reports and the modern technology, the satellite imagery, and also the drone footage that captured the, you know, um, that really captured the heart and soul of people and many uh, Jews. Uh, For example, the president of the uh, Board of Deputy uh, Jews in this country compared it uh, to the uh, during the Holocaust, how the Jews were transported from one place to another, uh, blindfolded, um, had shaven um, and shackled, that was that image uh, at one of the train stations. The reason that the Uyghur situation captured the attention of the world, first of all, is the number that millions of people interned. That never happened since the World War II. Secondly, the uh, satellite images that was uh, discovered, um, and the, the vast number of the detention camps the buyer and the watchtower uh, you could you could see that, and uh, the camp survivors uh, have very very bravely come forward despite signing agreements uh, that they will never say anything about what happened and what, what is happening inside, but the, we have dozens of camp survivors as soon as they reached a safe destination. They told the story of including sexual violence. And uh, like Tursnai Ziaudun, who is now living in Washington, she was gang raped three times. And she said actually almost all the women that she knew that in that camp um, experienced, experienced this violence, absolute horrific. And also the forced labor program uh, that ASPI, uh, Australian Institute, um, that reported Uyghurs for sale, and uh, with the um, very concrete uh, evidence of this large number of Uyghurs after being detained, then they were moved to factories and, and forced to work as slave labor. And in also two thousand and nineteen, the documents leaked a China cable. And one of the documents is about over four hundred and seven pages. It has a very detailed information about the how the camps should should be run, three layers of security, and all including the speech of Xi Jinping and many other high-level officials. And it says break their lineage break their roots, break their connections. So uh, basically you can, it's chilling when you, when you read those lines, chilling. It's not about re-education, it's about the aim, very aim is to completely destroy the people and also the culture. Uh, we have uh, experts, uh, did very extensive uh, research on uh, cultural destruction, um, destroying mosques and shrines. And the century old, one of the mosques was over 800 years old in Gauteng that was completely demolished. And many mosques they changed into bars, public toilets, and this has never happened in the history of, 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 of Uyghur people. So the entire, also this family separation, children being taken away and forced to, uh, forcibly placed in so-called boarding schools. But we, we know it's a kids camp that they are not allowed to have any visit, forced to uh, eat pork and uh, completely um, separated from the culture, from the language. so basically re-engineer the entire Uyghur population. So Uyghurs were given two choices. So one, either you completely submit yourself and uh, do not speak your language, do not practice your religion, and you live just like Han people. Only then uh, we will allow you to continue a so-called normal life. Otherwise, you will be kept in these facilities. This, they call it re-education, um, but it's uh, torture camps. Um, there's no much, not much difference from the Nazi camps that was, you know, written during the. Uh, uh, I mean, I visited some some of the camps uh, during the Nazi era, and then reading from these. Um, Reports um, as well as the um, survivor accounts is just horrific, it, unbelievable. Food deprivation, sleep deprivation, constant su- surveillance, um, four or five cameras in, in, in every uh, cell, uh, the overcrowding situation. And the camp survivors are not the prisoners not allowed to communicate with one another, so you're in this kind of crowded condition, but you are not allowed to speak to one another and because the camera is watching you all the time, and people there are just mental breakdown and many other things so um these other reasons that you know it is difficult for the world to ignore. Um, and the US government, the first government, recognized it, uh, recognized it as genocide. And uh, um, there are several um, European uh, parliaments also passed a motion calling this uh, as genocide. An Uyghur tribunal led by Sir Jeffrey Nice um, last year um, December also concluded a genocide based on the forced uh, birth control, forced sterilization and uh, um, abortions that preventing Uyghur uh, women to give birth. So basically stopping future Uyghurs to, to Uh, To be born. Yeah, there are many, many, many reasons Uh, I can can enlist that why the Uyghur uh, course, the situation of Uyghur, suddenly became the most spoken uh, topic in the world. Also, media. Uh, The very first um, short documentary was by Newsnight. Um, John Sweeney, for example, he interviewed me and I translated two survivors account when they interviewed in Turkey. Um, and then BBC documentary, several, BBC, uh, several documentaries were made by the BBC. I worked with the ITV documentary on the cover, China's Digital Gulag, and that won BAFTA Emmy, many other awards. So all these um, really captured the attention of the governments, uh, general public, civil society, NGOs and the recent UN report as well uh, called it Crimes Against Humanity. And uh, uh, earlier this year we also had this police file leaked, thousands of images of the detainees, first time leaked to, to, the, to media and you could see the real people, as young as 14, as old as 78-year-old women.
1: You mentioned genocide there. Uh, I know the the British government haven't recognised this as a genocide yet. It seems that there's a sticking point because MPs um, supported it being called a genocide, but the government can't declare it a genocide until a competent court um, declares it a genocide. The only competent court is the UN, of which China is a member and blocks it. Have I understood it correctly, though?
0: Yes, absolutely. There is no formal court for the Uyghurs, for anyone, you know, including Tibetans or any, anyone in under China's regime can go to because of the power. Uh, one, uh, China is not a member, and another, uh, Court is that the China has the veto power. Um, therefore, we uh, asked for the national court, for example, UK court, to examine the evidence that we have. Um, but the uh, uh, British they, the government said that it has to be international court. But there is no international court available for us to, uh, you know, to. to Really examine the evidence and uh, declare um, it as genocide crimes against humanity, under that kind of situation, um, we didn't have any other choice but to appoint a um, people's tribunal, um, the World War Congress, we reached out to such every nice um, and then the, the procedure of the Uyghur Tribunal was exactly the same procedure how they carry out in the International, uh, uh, international Court. And uh, Sir Geoffrey Nice, who was the um, prosecutor of Slobyan Milosevic who was in charge of this Uyghur Tribunal. And uh, after examining the thousands of pages of documents, including the personal account of survivors and the people who have many members uh, being interned, and also the reports, for example, from uh, Dr. Adrian Zenz and many other very credible, um, well-respected scholars, and that finally uh, concluded this is a genocide.
1: Oh, from what you're telling me, um, this is not just a persecution, a physical persecution against people. But The Chinese Communist Party are trying to wipe out an, an entire culture, wipe out the heritage of the Uyghur people. How close are we to actually losing this culture from the world?
0: It's extremely um, painful for me as uh, being a singer and uh, so I care so much about my culture, my language, um, and the beautiful um, makam traditions and many other uh, cultural traditions that you cannot find elsewhere in the world. Um, it's very unique. All cultures has its own unique and a beauty. Um, the Chinese government not only physically destroying Part of the Uyghur population, um, you know, by interning almost one third of the entire population, but also trying to completely re engineer the the, the Uyghur uh, as people, make them become Han Chinese. Um, I spoke to someone recently. who said the the people, for example, in Urumqi families even dare not to speak Uyghur language because they fear that someone um, might report them and then uh, end up in in camps. Can you imagine in the 21st century, people cannot speak, dare not speak their own mother tongue because they fear of this. The level of this, persecution and uh, fear is unimaginable, because people can see from those who released uh, after being taken away, no one dared to risk their life to be interned in, into those facilities. And therefore, we do believe that uh, under this kind of heavy-handed policies, genocidal policies, eventually we will lose our culture, our language. Uh, maybe this generation we still can we are their culture carriers. But imagine the next generations who are now studying in the in the universities, in the, at schools, uh, they also uh, face this um, high-tech surveillance uh, control and monitor their every move, whether they're speaking, they their own language or the Chinese. And many young people, they will choose the more convenient uh, way, and uh, also very easily can forget about, about the language, and let alone culture. If you don't even speak the language, then, you know, when your culture, cultural practice all criminalized, obviously you cannot. You imagine they don't even allow Uyghurs to, to have nikah, which is the uh, Islamic uh, tradition that when the Imam declare uh, men and women as husband and wife, that is also banned to that kind of extent when you when you when you face uh, persecution and gradually we will become the people who can survive under that regime be the ones that, who completely uh, follow the rules and the regulations and the force uh, forceful um, assimilation from the Chinese. So, this beautiful culture that um, we inherited from centuries, not only just the Islamic culture, but Uyghurs, we had been. Uh, Buddhists, shamanism. We still have the ruins and the uh, uh, from our ancient paintings. It's a very sophisticated uh, people, um, and a proud of uh, our own um, tradition and our own uh, cultural heritage, music, uh, poetry, literature and Uyghurs are one of those uh, Turkic people that love reading, love writing, and now they are f- completely um, criminalizing these uh, very center of the, the, the people who are the center of, of the community taken away and uh, um, given lengthy prison sentence or even and death. So under this kind of situation, I do believe the world should pay extra attention and to save the Uyghurs. Um, It's just like when you're in in a garden, when you have so many different flowers that makes the garden so beautiful. When you lose the Uyghurs, when you lose this very unique flower of this people family, um, it is difficult to replace that once it is lost.
1: You talked about uh, being a singer. From watching your performance, it it seems it's as much about defending uh, Uyghur tradition and culture as your human rights work is. Could you talk to us a bit about the role music plays?
0: I was born in a family. Uh, My father was very religious and my mother, uh, their family, uh, she came from a very musical family, from my grandfather, my great-grandfather. They were all quite known musicians and singers, so I uh, luckily inherited that um, talent. Uh, So I've been singing from very young age, following uh, my brothers, uh, uh, my two brothers' musicians, and my mother also played my late mother also played uh, Dutta and she had a very beautiful voice. For me, um, since I came to this country, uh, the very first thing that I struggled was when people asked uh, where I come from uh, or where I came from. I When I, I was reluctant to say China, I often said I'm Uyghur and I'm from Uh, East Turkestan, the so-called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and I had to give a lengthy explanation (laughs) because not many people really know about Uyghur then. Um, So in 2004, we formed the London Uyghur Ensemble. (laughs) Um, So this is a very first uh, ensemble that in Europe um, we aimed to educate people about the who are Uyghurs through music, and also the the what it is like to listen to the Uyghur folk and uh, classical music. It's been quite successful in that. Um, for me, uh, especially since uh, last six seven years, um, singing is another um, weapon, um, and. Uh, also, composing uh, songs uh, also became a very important part of my work. How we can give a voice to those who are silenced uh, the poets, the, the writers, and um, also to inspire young generations to be more interested in our culture, in our music, um, so that at least um, we can carry on in the countries where we are free. We are not uh, restricted from singing and from, from, from performing. So um, also for me personally, um, it's a therapy. Music is, has been a therapy. I lost contact uh, with my family for the last almost six years now. I don't know what happened to my brothers and my sisters. And all I know is that really terrible, unbearable kind of painful news about what is happening to my people. But in order for me to uh, carry on my life uh, normal and uh, whenever I feel whenever I feel, sad and feel depressed, I turn to music and I sing. Listen, or sometimes I even dance. That really kind of like healing for me is a, is a self healing. Um, Uyghur people, um, since the occupation from the Qing Dynasty up until now, maybe now we are the we are going through the darkest period of our of Uyghur history. Um, even before the Chinese Communist Party took over. Uh, the region, the uh, Uyghurs suffered uh, decades of persecution from previous governments, from previous rulers. So um, as you can imagine, they developed the songs and poetry and music um, based on their experience. Um, so you can find the the, the, the songs that is deeply sad and painful, but it's very um, uplifting as well. It can really heal your soul, and therefore it's extremely important um, for, for me, for my well-being, and also with activism. Sometimes people may not feel comfortable to hear those kind of tragic um, events or horrific uh, description of 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 uh, the persecution, but rather prefer to listen to songs or music. Um, but sometimes the songs can actually, without even understanding the language, you can feel the deep pain and the uh, suffering. Um, in that, also, we be able to attract more. Um, people to follow, uh, follow you and to join the course, to fight uh, f- with you. So, yeah, I always feel I am very lucky. I'm equipped with uh, music, with a song, and uh, also um, many other things.
1: Is there anything people at home can do to support your course?
0: Um, so, most importantly, um, everyone can write to their own MP and demand actions. Um, also the products that is made from slave labour people can boycott and should be very mindful about what they buy whether the product is coming from uh, the forced labour and uh, also donate. It's extremely important that you know like many uh, other charitable work that We do, Uh, we need resources uh, to be able to carry out our work. And therefore, it's very easy simple to to donate through the Stop Uyghur Genocide website. Um, And uh, yeah, join our protest as well. Follow me on Twitter and follow Stop Uyghur Genocide, World Uyghur Congress on Twitter. So raise awareness, and also speak to people around you, what is happening, educate more people. So all these are extremely important.
1: Rehima, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders.
0: Thank you for having me.